Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I'm a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, my brand new book, Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, becoming a patient, we actually have brand new telehealth patient options open right now. And there's lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R. W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. As I just said, my brand new book, Got Feelings, is out right now. The subtitle is Healing the Shame-Filled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. So I'm really talking about gut and the feelings, the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual, and the exciting research around both of those sides of that same coin, how underlying gut problems and things like SIBO and histamine intolerance and mold toxicity and chronic Lyme disease, things that I see on labs for patients, how those things will raise inflammation, impacting our mood, impacting things like anxiety and depression and irritability and brain fog and fatigue. And then conversely, how the feeling side of gut feelings, things like chronic stress and unresolved trauma and something that I talk about in the book called shame inflammation, things like shame will raise inflammation and dysregulate our nervous system, raising stress hormones and putting our autonomic nervous system in a hypervigilant state. So I put together a protocol in the book that's born out of my clinical experience here at the telehealth center to teach you gut action items and feelings, to feeling action items as well to regulate your nervous system, to calm stress hormones and calm inflammation. Anyways, you're going to love the book. I know it. If you listen to the podcast, you're going to love Gut Feelings. We're giving away tons of free stuff, even right now when you order Gut Feelings. So head on over to drwillcole.com, the Gut Feelings page, check it all out. We're also giving away free signed books. You can have a copy of Gut Feelings if you want. If you head on over to Apple Podcast and rate and review The Art of Being Well, you'll be entered for a chance to win a book. And every single month we're giving away free sign books no matter when you listen to this episode. So you can do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast Review itself, or you can take a screenshot of the Apple Podcast Review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month we'll be going through the messages on Instagram as well as the Apple Podcast Reviews themselves and randomly picking winners every single month. 
Good luck. All right, let's get to today's guest. He's a longtime friend of mine. His name is Dr. Vincent Pedre. Dr. Pedre is the medical director of Pedre Integrative Health and founder of Dr. Pedre Wellness, CEO and founder of Happy Gut Life LLC. He has worked as a nutraceutical consultant and spokesperson for Nature MD and is a functional medicine certified practitioner with the concierge practice in New York City since 2004. He believes the gut is the gateway to excellent wellness. His newest book, The Gut Smart Protocol, features a 14-day personalized gut healing plan based on the Gut Smart Quiz. It's the culmination of years of research and clinical experience as a functional gut health expert. I love this guy. In the conversation, our books came out really close to each other and they're the perfect yin and yang, the perfect sister books to really work on our gut and our feelings. You're gonna love his Gut Smart Protocol. So you're gonna learn all about it right now. Let's get right to it. This is Dr. Vincent Pedre's Art of Being Well. My friend, we get to catch up in front of everybody right now it apparently takes a podcast for us busy physicians to to talk sometimes. How how the heck are you? I've been doing great. This year is kicking off amazing for me, focusing on a lot of self-care and just uh like I was telling you, I'm I've been mostly in Miami Beach to kick off the year, waking up, meditating, taking a dip in the ocean as the sun is rising. Like it couldn't be better. I mean, that's that's bliss for me. That sounds like bliss. I love Miami. And a New York boy like you, man, it's I can't believe it. It's like you're, you're uh, it's, is, has it been difficult? I guess probably not <laughs> from the sounds of it. But <laughs> is there anything you miss about it, it, Manhattan? It hasn't been a, a really bad winter this year, thankfully. <laughs> but no, it has. There's nothing that's been difficult about this. <laughs> I love it. So let's, we're going to be, I mean, talking, everybody's listening right now to two people who are passionate about gut health that have seen a lot of cases over the years. So they're going to get an insider look of a lot of pro tips about gut health. So let's start with, well, let's start with this new book. I think that's probably a good segue. What precipitated the book? Why now? And why this book? I think it's really timely and probably why we're, we're book twins, because we both have books coming out at about the same time. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Thank um, you so love much. love to hear about it. So the book is called The Gut Smart Protocol, and it's kind of an amalgamation of, of everything that I've consolidated and learned since I first published Happy Gut over seven years ago. And I wanted to write a second gut book for several reasons. Uh, one, the science is moving really fast. We're learning so much about the, the interconnections between the health of the gut microbiome and the health of the rest of the body. And secondly, I wanted to take what I had learned from writing the first book and seeing and watching people go through the program, but also realizing that people need a lot of guidance and handholding, but also that there's just not one size fits all when it comes to gut health issues. Mm -hmm. And what I learned over all these years is that no two guts are the same. And if someone comes in with severe gut issues, you can't tell them to eat the same as someone who has just mild mm -hmm. gut issues. 
And that was really the impetus and the idea behind writing this book, this 14-day protocol, was to personalize it using a quiz. I call it the Gutsmart quiz, to allow people to almost like write their own path through it by first understanding, well, what is their level of gut dysfunction? And not just gut dysfunction, but how is that affecting the rest of your body? And that all factors into the score, which is a reflection of whether they have leaky gut, how many gut-related health issues they might be experiencing, that gives you a higher score. And if you score severe, you can't eat in the same way that someone who is mild. You know, for example, you have severe gut issues, you even though you probably heard, and we can talk about it, like fermented foods are great for you. They're so good for the gut. But if you have severe, you can't tolerate ferments. You cannot be eating ferments. So I wanted to take away some of the confusion around what people can eat and what they can eat depending on their gut type and make it something that they can, they can basically figure out their own path with a lot of guidance. And it's just basically I put together all of my wisdom, my experience treating patients as a medical doctor in New York City for now over two decades and really understanding what it takes to heal the body. And it's not just about diet, you know. So in my first book, I incorporated it a little bit, you know, talking about yoga and the gut and yoga poses. This book, I really wanted to dive into the vagus nerve and the role of the gut-brain connection and how important that is. It's not like do the diet and then if you have time, then go do some of the mindset stuff. It's more like do the diet, but also do the mindset stuff, do the meditation, do the breath work. Because what I've realized over all of these years, taking care of all types of people, especially stressed out New Yorkers, is that you can't out diet and you can't out supplement a stressed out lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So you well said. Can't. You know what? I didn't like. Obviously, I knew that you had a book coming out. I knew the uh, overview of the book, but I didn't realize until I was preparing for this interview. And I, we, you and I, during the writing process, didn't talk about it beforehand. But I think there's something to be said about the synchronicity of this. And you said like our books are coming around the same time. That there are in many ways sister books talking about these topics from two different vantage points of people who really just are immersed in this sun up to sundown for the past decade plus beyond the need for this conversation uh, coming out right now, really talking about this bi-directional relationship around mental health and physical health. And it's so interconnected and how people get stuck at these resistant plateaus. I don't think it's an accident that our books are coming at the same time and this conversation needs to happen. So Let's talk about these complex things that we've, we're seeing. And increasingly, I would assume if that we're both seeing the same thing, increasingly more complex, more resistant maybe, but still 100% healable when you know what you're doing. But I would just say it's beyond the basics. And that's a lot of people that listen to the podcast is they are extremely erudite, savvy. They do all the things and they're most of them are probably we could assume better off than they would be if they weren't doing all these things, but they are struggling with varying degrees of different digestive problems or inflammatory problems or or if they aren't, they know somebody who is 
because it's becoming increasingly ubiquitous. So yeah. what are the these top complex issues? You mentioned the fermented food. I think that's a really good point here. What's going on there? And what are the other things that you're seeing to maybe let's shed light on it and let people know they're not alone? Yeah. And the question is, are we seeing more of it because there is more of it? Or are we seeing more of it because we're finally giving a voice to people who were written off for years, maybe went to the doctor complaining of bloating and they were just told, yeah, you just got to kind of live with it. You know, for example, SIBO. I mean, that's become such a big diagnosis in the last couple of years. But is it that SIBO didn't exist before then, or we just weren't looking for it, we weren't checking for it, we weren't doing breath tests? That certainly wasn't something that was on the radar 20 plus years ago when I was in medical school. And yet SIBO is the underlying reason or cause for at least 60 to 70% of people with IBS might have underlying SIBO. And why are we seeing so many gut issues in general? I mean, I think we have to look at how many people are getting antibiotic prescriptions, millions per year, probably to the tune of like 40 some million antibiotic prescriptions that are written that weren't actually necessary every year for viral infections. So we're, we're doing a lot of things between antibiotics, overuse of hand sanitizers, using antibacterial soaps, which have been shown to cause changes in the gut microbiome that are not favorable, that we're, and along with just eating too many processed foods, pesticides in, in our food, glyphosate that contaminates the, not only GMO crops, but also wheat, that we are basically living in an onslaught, like a landmine for our guts. And that's causing not just gut issues, but a whole host of what I call gut-related health issues because they they start with the gut, but they affect the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. Well said. So that's a great point here. I think probably in, in my mind would be a bit of both and, right? It's like I would assume that these things are increasing in numbers over time. The more and more people are exposed to these things, the more people age in a world with these variables, new variables that are relatively new. But I 100% hear your point, and I, you're absolutely, I would assume intuitively that you're right, that the more and more that information that we talk about is democratized, the more it becomes mainstream, if you will, and people hear conversations like this and people wanting answers about these issues, they're seeking out answers to people like us versus just a few, maybe a few years ago, let alone a generation ago, they would have just struggled on their own and not really had the resources or tools that you're talking about in your book and that we do day in, day out clinically, uh, tools to start to heal from these things, right? Yeah. I mean, these, if you think about it, these are things, a lot of these health issues aren't necessarily going to kill you immediately, right? People can live with them. I mean, it's estimated that up to 11.2% of the world population lives with irritable bowel syndrome. That, you know, based on the world population now of 8 billion as of November of last year, that's 896 million people worldwide living with reversible gut issues. Like absolutely reversible gut issues that are being precipitated by a whole host of problems. A lot of them have to do with what they're eating 
But a big part of it, to tie back to what I was saying in the beginning, has to do with stress. Yeah. Have you heard about zero acre cultured oil? Oh my gosh, you have to check this out. I've been using it since they've come out. I'm actually an investor in the company because I'm such a believer of their mission and this quality of this product. There are so many potential problems with seed and vegetable oils or industrial seed oils, as we call them in the health space oftentimes. They are not only potentially inflammatory for us because of the high omega-6 diet the modern Westerner has and not enough healthy omega-3s, but also they're not great for the environment as well. And ultimately it's important to remember that we're part of nature and something that's bad for the earth is not gonna be great for human health and vice versa. Seed oils are cheap and are found in most restaurants and packaged foods. Read the labels, my friend. They are high in inflammatory linoleic acid and omega-6 fatty acids. Again, the ratios of omegas 3, 6, and 9, these polyunsaturated fatty acids are really important. And the modern Western diet is disproportionately higher in these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. Zero Acre is here to change that. Their cultured oil is an all-purpose cooking oil with over 90% heart-healthy and heat-stable monounsaturated fats. It has more monounsaturated fat than even olive and avocado oils and up to 10 times less omega-6 fats than olive and avocado oils. And it's very convenient to use if you're new to using it because it's a one-to-one replacement for all liquid oils. It's great for frying, roasting, sauteing, stir-frying, baking, dressings, drizzling, and baking. And since it's made by fermentation, cultured oil has a 10 times smaller environmental footprint than vegetable oils. It uses 85% less land than canola oil and requires 99% less water than olive oil. Zero Acre is offering our listeners free shipping on your first order. Go to zeroacre.com slash or use code WILLCOLE at checkout to claim this special deal. That's Z-E-R-O-A-C-R-E dot com slash WILLCOLE. Zeroacre dot com slash WILLCOLE. Hi, friends. I'm Cameron Rogers, host of Freckles Beauty and Friends podcast, which is now on Dear Media. Are you wondering what just happened to your life after having a baby or struggling with your mental health during postpartum? That was me just a few months ago. Are you working on healing your relationship with yourself, your body, and or food? Same. We are all on a journey to self-love and acceptance, and I am right there with you. That's what Freckled Foodie and Friends is all about, reminding you that no matter what, you are not alone. Make sure to tune in for season five, launching with Dear Media on November 9th, and subscribe to listen to new episodes every Wednesday morning. All right, so let's go, let's hone in on that point that you made. I love it with the fermented foods, right? It can be a great tool for many people. It has a lot of really good supportive reasons why someone should consider having it. It's probiotic, rich, it has fiber. We're talking about things like sauerkraut and kimchi and the fermented drinks that people see, have seen for years on the health food aisles like kombuchas and kvasas and kefirs and yogurts and the cheeses, all the things that are out there. Why? Tell the people why some people are having reactions to these and they may or may not even know it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, if you're histamine sensitive, you're going to be really sensitive to ferment because some ferments increase histamine production in the food or they're going to increase histamine secretion in the gut. And just across the board, if you have leaky gut, you're going to have a histamine issue. 
pretty much, because when the gut is leaky, the gut epithelium is damaged. You're not producing enough of the enzyme diamine oxidase, which can help break down histamine, and you become histamine sensitive. And a lot of these people walking around with SIBO or small intestinal uh, bacterial overgrowth, a lot of them actually have hidden CIFO, so it's small intestine fungal overgrowth. And when you have a probiotic in fermented foods, can actually cause a pretty dramatic die-off reaction, depending on the degree how much you have. So you can actually feel worse when you think this food should be making you feel better. It's got a. It, it's going into an ecological system, right? So your your gut is like this rainforest ecology. And there's prey and there's predators, there's all these players, and then you throw in a fermented food and it's going to shake things up. So even when they've looked at a study, I can talk about a really cool study that was done by Stanford University in 2021, looking at what are the effects of a high fermented foods diet versus a high fiber diet on the gut microbiome. Are they the same? Are they different? Is one better than the other? And they did find that there were certain differences between them. And it's quite fascinating because in functional medicine, we learn like eat the rainbow, like that's what's going to create microbial diversity. That's what supports your gut microbiome. So, you know, eat all the different colors of vegetables out there. And, and I still think that's good you know, because you're getting a lot of antioxidants and you're getting prebiotic nutrients that are feeding your gut microbiome. And that produces a whole bunch of really key and important postbiotic nutrients like short chain fatty acids, like butyrate, which have all sorts of epigenetic effects. But what was surprising in this study, and this was a, this was a 10 week study. So it was short. So there are a few caveats and it was only 18 people per arm. So it wasn't a huge study and they didn't have a control arm. But when you looked at what happened to the gut microbiome and the people who were on the high fermented foods, and that was, they were having not one serving, not two of fermented foods. They were having up to five to six servings during the six week part. So there was a four week ramp up and then a six week maintenance where they were asked to eat up to six servings per day. And most of it was being consumed in the form of yogurt or vegetable brines, which is just kind of like a fermented vegetable drink. And what they found was, you know, and, and as a functional medicine provider, I was reading the study and thinking, okay, who's going to win? Is it the fiber rich group? Is it the fermented foods? Like I was like <laughs> in a horse race, like watching, like <laughs> who is going to win? I'm like thinking it's the fiber rich group is going to do best. And no, it was the fermented foods group that had the greatest increase in microbial diversity and the biggest drop in 19 inflammatory markers, including cytokine activation of intracellular activation by cytokines. And that was in the fermented food group. Now the fiber rich group, it wasn't that it was all bad. It modulated their immune response. And what was really interesting is that they actually found that there were three groups within the fiber rich group. There was a group with low microbial diversity, a group with medium, and a group with higher. And not surprisingly, the group that did best in the fiber-rich group in terms of immune modulation 
was the one with the highest microbial diversity. Amazing. But it was the fermented foods that increased the diversity of the gut microbiome. And you think, well, okay, you're eating ferments, so they've got probiotic bacteria, and maybe that's why it's increasing diversity. But there's not a lot of diversity in fermented foods. It's only going to be a couple of strains at most. And they could measure those early on. But as you towards the end of the study, what they found is that these fermented foods were actually promoting the growth of other bacteria in the gut. Mm. And that's something that we see is that bacteria not only colonize, but they help support the growth of other bacteria through something called cross-feeding, where the mm. postbiotic, the metabolites from one bacteria are feeding another bacterial species in the gut. And by doing that, they create diversity. Mm-hmm. Now, why am I talking about diversity? Why is diversity? I, I say diversity is the holy grail of your health. You want diversity. And we know that certain diseases are you know, akin to loss of diversity. So inflammatory bowel disease, a lot of autoimmune diseases, any inflammatory diseases, you see a drop in microbial diversity. Even with things like depression, you see a drop in microbial diversity in the gut. So what diversity does across the board and what the studies show is that it reduces inflammation and you get a good creation of all sorts of short chain fatty acids. But there's a lot that's going on interacting with the gut border. It's reducing gut permeability. It's improving the gut lining to protect us from all those inflammatory chemicals that are coming from the gut. Absolutely. I love that. So, and that's sort of the uh, confusion, I think, because there's exciting science like that around fermented foods. So how the question that I'm thinking the average person that's listening to this podcast right now is, how do I know if I should be having fermented foods or not? You're telling me it has amazing benefits, helps bacterial diversity, but also talking about histamine intolerance, it's a problem. Yeah. How do we know? How do we bring it in? The book, The Gut Smart Protocol, take the quiz because based on your gut smart score, you're going to know whether you can eat fermented foods or not. And actually, one thing that I explained that I think is really important, and also just noting in this study, the people that were on the high fermented foods group were having only about half a cup per day before the study. They didn't take them from half a cup to six cups overnight. They did a four-week ramp up. So... If you take the gut smart quiz and you come out in the moderate category, which is the biggest category, one thing that I explain is you're not going to jump in and start incorporating all types of ferments. You're going to test the waters. And when I say test the waters, it's going to sound like it's very little. You're going to start with a quarter teaspoon and you're going to slowly increase. You're going to see how this reacts with your body. And I think this kind of ties into a lot of what you talk in your books about intuition, gut feelings, really tuning into your body. And something that I also try to teach in my book is really listening to your body and understanding that even as much as I can make recommendations and I can divide people into three groups, you still got to be your own doctor and you've got to be really aware of what your body is doing and how is it interacting with the outside world, the environment and the foods that you put in it to know what's right for you and what isn't right for you because no one can know your body better than you can. 
Yeah, well said. So if somebody has, let's just say they went maybe too high, too fast, they weren't going low and slow, testing judiciously how things like fermented foods work for them, what are some signs of, let's say, histamine intolerance or like a more egregious, like a mast cell activation syndrome? What, yeah. what are things that, what are some of the top things to look out for? Yeah, some of the big ones are gonna be as simple as gut symptoms like abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloating, discomfort, but they can also see systemic histamine issues. So like nasal congestion, sneezing, breaking out in skin rashes, hives, but even just kind of like the effects, the, the systemic effects of histamine, which are they make you tired, they make you feel achy, you might feel fatigued, you might feel a bit brain foggy. So it, it has a lot of crossover with symptoms that you might experience from other issues, but they can also happen pretty quickly after you eat the food. Yeah, absolutely. I see a lot of neurological issues like this, the brain fog fatigue. I see migraines a lot with these things as well. Do you, do you see any other higher histamine or histamine releasing foods that clinically that people should look out for and maybe test it for themselves? Like you say, like, is it working for me or is it not? Everybody's yeah. different. Yeah, any aged cheeses, wine, a lot of people hear about the health benefits of wine, drinking red wine, white wine. And honestly, alcohol in general can be problematic, not just because of histamine issues, but because the alcohol in alcohol actually, you know, we use alcohol on surfaces, right, as a disinfectant. Well, when you ingest it, it's doing the same thing to your gut. It's actually disrupting your gut microbiome. And as a secondary effect, it's causing dysbiosis. You drink a lot, the more you drink, you're going to create more of a dysbiosis and imbalance between good and bad bugs. And that's going to lead to leaky gut and a whole host of inflammation. We know that alcohol also increases the secretion of inflammatory interleukins. So it's going to make you inflamed. But wine also can be a really big trigger for histamine and for people who are really sensitive migraines. They have to be really careful with mm -hmm. um, wine, especially. Yeah, certainly. Okay, great, great uh, things to look out for. And for people listening, reference point, episodes back, go back and search. I have a full episode about histamine intolerance and labs and like sort of a deep dive clinical review if you want sort of a part two on that conversation. All right, you mentioned fiber. That's another one that's like such a bio-individual. They could take the quiz in your book to find out, but there's so much maybe nuance to that too, right? There are fiber we know, so much exciting research about bacterial diversity, like you say, but some people get flared up or unwanted digestive issues from different types of fiber. So yeah. what's going on there for the people that are maybe, I'm thinking of that they eat the salad, right? They have a, like a big salad, this sort of epitomization of this healthy food. It's a salad, right? Yeah. But the then they salad. eat the salad and they- the kale salad, right. So then they, they have the kale salad, they feel bloated, they feel inflamed, and they're like, what the heck? My body doesn't like a salad. What's going yeah. on there, doc? Yeah, so that's one that you've got to break down into different pieces. So first of all, when you eat a salad, you know, anyone who's listening, you got to think like, are you getting bloated immediately? Like while you're eating the salad, are you starting to burp? as you eat the salad and kind of get kind of gassy within the first couple of minutes? Or are you eating the salad and you're okay initially, 
But then within 30 minutes, you start feeling kind of bloated. You feel like things aren't really digesting, moving along. Those things can mean different things. If you're getting bloated immediately, it can be that you're not making enough stomach acid. So you're not, making, you're not able to activate your proteases to start breaking down the proteins and the vegetables or whether, I don't know if there's protein in the salad or not. It could be a vegan salad or it could be a salad with some animal protein in it. But if you're getting that burping, that gas really quickly, that's a sign that your stomach is just not making enough stomach acid and you're not able to break down those foods. And if it happens later on, then we've got to start thinking that you've got an overgrowth of microbes in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And you might have underlying SIBO. You can't break down those foods, but it doesn't even have to be a salad. It could be that you have a meal that's prepared with a lot of garlic and then 30 minutes later, you're not feeling so great and you're feeling really gassy and your, your stomach is uncomfortable or the same thing with onions or leeks. All of these are great prebiotic nutrients, but prebiotics are going to make you feel sick when you have bacteria hanging out in the wrong place. The biggest reservoir of our gut microbiome is inside the large intestine. And the difference is quite dramatic between the small intestine and the large intestine. It's like several like four times the magnitude of bacteria per milliliter if you do an aspirate. So you're not supposed to have a lot of, a lot of the microbiome in the small intestine because we want to be able to break down those foods as well. And the fact that, you're get, that the person is getting gassy, if it's a little bit later on, so if it's after that 20, 30-minute mark, then you have to think that there's some digestive enzyme insufficiency. There's got to be brush border. So there's probably leaky gut syndrome. There might be some pancreatic insufficiency. If there were any nuts in the salad, any other issues there, maybe they have some gallbladder issues. Maybe they had their gallbladder taken out and they're just not get, getting that bolus of bile that helps not only absorb and mycelize fats, but it's also helping control the environment in the small intestine and keeping it more sterile, keeping preventing the overgrowth of bacteria. So those are some of the things that people need to think about. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, and I talk about it in my book, that when you have severe gut issues, you have to be really careful about eating too many raw vegetables. You think, okay, eating a salad is super healthy. Yeah, this is the best way to be healthy. But if you're starting with a severe gut type, then you might have to cook all your vegetables. And you think of the cooking as doing part of the digesting outside of your body. So it's going to make it easier for your body to break down and assimilate those foods. It's going to take less work. So true. With so many health products available these days, I tend to be loyal to the brands I know and trust. This is an invitation to try a brand I've recently become really excited about, Banyan Botanicals. Banyan is more than just a brand. Their offerings are rooted in Ayurveda, the ancient Indian healing system that, like functional medicine, focuses on addressing the root cause of imbalances. Their website has tons of free educational content, including recipes, a YouTube channel, and their celebrated dosha quiz. Banyan also provides trustworthy Ayurvedic wellness products that are organic, fairly traded, and sustainably sourced. They are a certified B Corporation, and I'm honestly impressed by the quality of products they offer. 
I recommend starting with Banyan Botanical's best-selling Trafala. This plant-based formula has undergone scientific studies and is a source of tannins, phytosterols, and flavonoids, active phytocompounds that support healthy digestion and natural cleansing, and has been used in Ayurvedic medicine for thousands of years. You probably know by now that I'm passionate about gut health and maintaining a healthy gut microbiome and supporting regularity are some of the main benefits of taking Trafala. I'd love for you to experience all the benefits of this time-honored Ayurvedic formula and explore other supportive products and resources Banyan has to offer. Banyan is on Amazon and Thrive Market, but you can save 20% on my favorite Banyan Botanicals products, including the Trafala, when you shop at banyanbotanicals.com slash willcole. Just go to B-A-N-Y-A-N botanicals.com slash willcole, banyanbotanicals.com slash willcole, and enter promo code willcole at checkout. Health insurance plans can be confusing and expensive. Then when you actually have to use your benefits, there are deductibles, claims processes, and other red tape to deal with. Basically, the health insurance process can be inaccessible for many people and can leave you feeling taken advantage of. My friends at CrowdHealth are doing things differently. CrowdHealth is simple, transparent, and affordable. As a CrowdHealth member, you'll get a personal care advocate to help you navigate the complexities of health events. Your personal care advocate will even negotiate bills on your behalf. They'll be with you every step of the way and could save you thousands in health bills in the process. You'll get access to a crowd of thousands of other members who are ready to help pay for large health expenses. $40 of your $175 monthly payment helps you pay for your care advocate, telemedicine services, discounted prescriptions, and other tools to get you the best care at an affordable price. Many of my telehealth patients use CrowdHealth and love it. The remainder of the monthly payment goes into a CrowdHealth account that you own. So you can help others in the crowd pay for their medical expenses at well. It's a way to become a community to help people get well. Experience healthcare freedom with CrowdHealth. Visit joincrowdhealth.com and use code WILLCOLE at checkout to get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code WILLCOLE. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, so another thing that comes up in my mind, that I'm speaking for the people right now, what, what they wanna know. Another aspect of kale, or let's say maybe some legumes, some beans, chocolate, yeah. it can be higher in plant compounds like oxalates. And then some of our savvier listeners have heard maybe conflicting information on oxalates. Is that something that people should be mindful of? Is it only relevant to some people? What's your thoughts on that? It's going to be something that some people have to really pay attention to, especially if you're prone to things like kidney stones. Then you have to be really careful with oxalates. They can actually not just cause kidney stones, but make you feel tired and achy and, and foggy. So again, that's an individualized issue that people need to pay attention to. Yeah. 
But your tip there of cooking those vegetables down, those plant foods down, will break down the oxalates just like it helps. Like you said, it's like same pre-digesting as the, it. Same as the lectins. But if you're talking about legumes and beans and things like that, you really want to soak them overnight which is a lot of people don't do this because you want a shortcut. You want to just make things quickly. So you take the fast route or you're having canned beans instead of, you know, making them yourself raw or, or sprouting them before you cook them. You can buy sprouted beans, which actually, Mm -hmm. you know, makes the nutrients more bioavailable, but also reduces some of the, the side effects that you can, you get from eating these lectin rich foods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so now I want to know. We're talking to the, one of the world's leading gut health doctors right now. The what do you think of the carnivore diet? Is it what's your thought? Where does it fit in? I was on his uh, podcast, and we've got Paul Saladinos. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have a we have a differing view on these. All right, let's let's get here. Let's get nitty gritty. <laughs> what's the four one one on here? Because I know both of you, and I love both of you. But yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear it. Well, let's look at it from the perspective of heart health and brain health. And I think what I think what can make these arguments difficult is that the gut microbiome is different for different people. So you might have a gut microbiome that doesn't make a lot of TMA, trimethylamine from L-carnitine and from phosphatidylcholine from red meat and from shellfish, lobster. Now, why is this significant? Because if you do, and people who eat more of these foods, when they've looked at, you know, a more vegan diet, a vegetable-based, plant-based diet versus a very heavy red meat diet, that people who are eating a lot of red meat, for example, or shellfish, things like that, they're going to produce more TMA methylamine. Now, why is that significant? So the bacteria in the gut are taking these nutrients and they're they're creating this this substance called trimethylamine that gets absorbed through the port of circulation, then goes to the liver. Now, this is the thing why it's hard to then create these generalizations, but it's important to understand that once it gets to the liver, depending on your genetic makeup, you might have a very fast-acting flavin monooxygenase enzyme in the liver that converts that TMA into TMAO, trimethylamine N-oxide. Now, why is TMAO so important to know? Because TMAO by itself, when it's present in the bloodstream, increases the risk of stroke and heart attack by double just by being present. It doesn't matter what your cholesterol, you can have the best cholesterol levels. If you have really high TMAO, you're at higher risk for stroke and heart attack because it activates platelets. It makes the platelets more sticky. The other thing that's really interesting that I found while I've been researching and and writing and stuff is that high TMAO is also associated with depression. So it affects the brain in a negative fashion. If you eat a diet that's more rich in plant-based foods, your TMAO production drops. And thus, you are being protected from these conditions. Now, 
carnivore diet, people argue that you're getting a lot of butyrate through the carnivore diet. I will argue that you, we still really need some vegetables in our diet and it's not realistic, you know, to, to eat just the carnivore based diet. And I have a friend who has autoimmune disease and he actually went on an experiment and just ate a carnivore diet to see if it would get his inflammatory autoimmune disease under control. And it didn't quite do that. Things actually got a little bit worse. Now, let me, let me go back and let me go in time to a human time capsule. So while I was researching this book, I went to Africa and I got the opportunity to stay and camp out with the Hatsa, the hunter-gatherers that have been around for over a thousand years. Yeah. And they're still doing everything the way they used to do. So they're hunting, they're hunting for medium to small to medium sized animals. So like little birds to even to goats and things like that. But they're also gathering and they're eating root vegetables. They're they're eating honey, honeycomb, like raw honey. They're foraging for berries and they're also eating baobab fruit. And if you think about it historically, like humans wouldn't have been eating animals all the time. Right. Not practical. And then you can go into arguing like, you know, just our tooth structure is omnivorous. We're meant to eat both animal protein and and other meats. But I think, you know, I'm sure that if is it Paul Saladino Saladino. Yeah, Paul Saladino. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure if he was on here, he would get very uh but look, <laughs> the research the research is clear. Look, I'm not I think First, it's important to make sure that if you are eating meats, that they're being sourced from good sources, you know, antibiotic free, raised on natural foods that they're meant to eat, not not like corn and soy, like they're Mm -hmm. not meant to be eating grains, like raised on their natural historical diet, but also lots of plants. Yeah, I think that's the right balance because otherwise you're, you're going to be producing too much TMA and possibly converting that to TMAO, and it's going to increase your risk for heart disease, stroke, and depression. Right. And is it true? I mean, I would, as I would say that this is true. The more diverse, again, this sort of omnivore approach and that being the goal for most humans, that when you're talking about the polyphenols from the plants and the fiber from the plants, that if yeah. that when you're getting, especially when getting good quality meats, that sort of counterbalances any sort of extreme production of TMAO if somebody's exclusively eating meat, high quality quantities of it long-term. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, and, and when they looked at that, the people who were eating plants and some meat had less TMAO production. Yeah. The lowest is gonna be a vegan diet, and as you know, you know, when President Clinton had like multi-bypass surgery, he ended up as a vegan. But I, I don't think that that is what needs to be done for everyone. I think if you're wise about it and you really balance your diet with the right like influx of polyphenols and antioxidants from these foods. And I think also the other really key and important thing is how do we maintain microbial diversity mm-hmm. in the gut? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, the Hadza people, that's great. So cool that you got to go be immersed with them and the research that's being done on them and some learning these, these ancestral ways of eating, I think is great. And, and I want to highlight, okay, why, you know, I didn't, I didn't highlight this, but the reason that I'm fascinated by the Hadza 
are one, they've done studies on their gut microbiome. So we know what their gut microbiome looks like. Yes. Two, they have no heart disease. They have no diabetes. They have no obesity. They have no mental health issues. In fact, this was really fascinating when I was there. We were, we were talking about a lot of things and we had a translator who could speak their language. And we were asking them, you know, what's your word for depression? And they just looked at us puzzled. I'm like, we don't have a word for that. Like it doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah. And they're it's just a, a, living with the elements. They, they have such a level of resilience of, you know, they're, they're outside, they're getting rained on. They're just wearing minimal clothing and they don't even have a concept for depression. Right. And their microbiome, right? I mean, the studies show that the Hadza microbiome shifts with the year. Like you're saying, you're not always eating meat. It's cyclical. Yeah. It's seasonal. It's more of the sort of rhythms of the how our ancestors would have eaten. They're still doing that and decreasing that epigenetic genetic mismatch of which we have such a massive chasm, right? And so does our microbiome, sadly. And that's what's triggering all these problems. And it's, you know, I'll say this about a way that I use the carnivore diet temporarily for some patients that have hyperreactive issues and we're monitoring it. And it's a tool within the toolbox for some people as almost an ultimate elimination diet for a short period of time. And then we work on reintroductions for people that have these wild mast cell activations issues and yeah. histamine intolerance and oxalate issues. But I wouldn't recommend it for people long-term. And it's interesting knowing Paul and knowing you and for years for both, is that I even see Paul now, he's having honey, he's eating fruits, he's having things. So even the hardliner that he, I feel like he was for a while, he's evolved and pivoted to show, hey, look, for a variety of different reasons, uh, there we should not be fearing plant foods. And even in his book, he shows sort of a spectrum of sort of these the plant compounds that could be more reactive, which... I believe is true for people that have these hyperreactive systems. But the problem, and I think you'd agree with this, isn't the food, it's decimation what we've done as a culture to our microbiome that's causing these reactions to these otherwise healthy, benign foods, right? Yeah, I mean, because if you look at the blue zones, some of the commonalities between the blue zones where people live past 100 are they eat legumes, that's a big component of their diet, whether it's soybeans or fava beans, wherever it's different from different regions of the world. And they also eat a lot of nuts. And that's a big part of their diet. So, you know, you have to look at that and think, you know, when we're talking about and they and they eat lectin rich foods, you know, mm -hmm. so it got me thinking like, well, why can they do that? Obviously, you know, if we're, we're vilifying lectins or we're vilifying these foods and saying like, they're going to, they're going to shorten your lifespan, but Hey, over here, we've got the blue zones and people are eating the very foods that you're saying we shouldn't eat and they're living past a hundred. So what is the key? I mean, what's, mm -hmm. what's the difference there? Well, typically they're living really connected to the earth and the land and, and the, the outside world nature. They, a lot of them garden for themselves. And secondly, they, they live very connected in community. Mm -hmm. So their stress levels are low. And I think where you have to look is where you just said. It's the gut microbiome. It's not 
the lectins, the foods, those are the red herring. It's not the food's fault. The fault is what's happening inside the body, inside the gut. Mm -hmm. Which we have some agency over, right? We can start to repair that and maybe use a protocol like you could say a carnivore-ish or whatever, like a simplified protocol for a season and then work on reintroduction over time to get that bacterial diversity from different plant fibers, as you're saying. That's how I see it. And obviously you and I are on the same page on that. So another hot topic, I want to get your hot take on it, probiotics. People are so confused, right? It's like the Wild West as they see all the probiotics and then they hear conflicting news that comes up here and there on they're a waste of money. There's probiotics don't do anything. And then they hear someone else say, no, it's take probiotics. So what's your hot take on probiotics, but also postbiotics? Let's talk about both. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a place for both of them. And especially as a clinician, when you're dealing with people who are coming in with a lot of gut dysfunction, I've seen probiotics make a huge difference for people. But I've also seen the wrong probiotic actually make people sick. And it depends on what their issue is, what they're coming in with. Uh, certain probiotics and even the strength of the probiotic, you know, what we call the CFU, the colony forming units, can be problematic for certain people. And yet there is a lot of research out there on how individual probiotic strains can actually create some pretty dramatic and measurable health effects. You know, even looking at like strains of lactobacilli or bifidobacteria that help increase calcium absorption and help prevent bone loss in midlife. You know, so I think that we are, we're still evolving in our understanding. I mean, there's even research looking at how probiotics could help reduce eczema or how probiotic might help with depression. And I think we still have a lot to learn there. You know, sometimes it's kind of like the Wild West. And even mm -hmm. as a clinician, you're making your best guesstimate on what's going to be right for a patient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not the right thing. You know, so mm -hmm. you're, you're putting it into a system where you don't know everything about that system. Even when you do gut microbiome testing, there's still a lot of unknowns in there. But one mm -hmm. thing that I've learned is, you know, one thing to understand about probiotics is there are traditional probiotics, which are like lactobacilli, bifidobacterium, strep, saccharomyces, and those are okay for certain people. But if you have underlying SIBO, if you have a lot of bloating, those probiotics are probably going to make you feel worse. Mm -hmm. And what I've landed upon is that these patients with SIBO, with, uh, with a lot of bloating, with maybe too many bacteria in the wrong place, they actually do better with spore-based probiotics. Agreed. And even yeah. there, you have to be careful. You know, sometimes the spore-based dose is too big and I actually have them yeah. open the capsule open and the start, capsule. With a, yeah. start with a lower dose. Because it's a spore, you can open the capsule and just pour it on food and take it that way. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think probiotics serve a really key and important purpose and they can do a lot. They have a lot of benefits, especially depending on the clinically researched strains. Because if you, if you go out there, if you go to Whole Foods, if you go to a health food store, you're going to find a lot of probiotics. And a lot mm -hmm. of them are just going to say something like lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm -hmm. Well, the regular consumer doesn't understand that that's just one of many different strains, and you don't know which strain they're using. 
Mm. So brands that are actually putting in the code name after that, so it's lactobacillus acidophilus L01AB or something like that, that's a specific strain. When those strains are put in a probiotic, that means that that's a clinically researched strain because it has that code on it. And you want to look for that because those types of probiotics are going to have put time and effort behind sourcing strains that have positive research behind them, like they help with constipation, they help reduce inflammation in the body, they help improve uh, just general bowel feeling, the consistency of the stool. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that's really important for people to take away. Now, in terms of postbiotics, I think there's a, there can be a lot of benefits to them, like having someone take butyrate, for example. Mm-hmm. Butyrate is incredibly anti-inflammatory. It's a modulator of the immune response. It actually plays a role in bone formation, but also epigenetic effects in the brain, forming memory, new neural connections. And butyrate can serve a really important role in healing the gut in people who have long-standing leaky gut, especially people who have leaky gut and Lyme disease, leaky gut and mold toxicity. A lot of these people need additional help while you're rebuilding the gut because ultimately you want your own butyrate-forming factories inside your gut. Yeah. But you might not be able to get there until a few months later or maybe Mm -hmm. even 12 months down the road because you have to slowly rebuild their gut. And during that Mm -hmm. time, these postbiotics can actually play a really important role in healing the gut and improving uh, uh, gut permeability. Yeah, I see the same thing. Agreed. And I know this is another uh, sort of common question that I think will be fascinating to get your take on it is people want to know, all right, I'm on it. I have to go on a round of antibiotics. Maybe they have some sort of bacterial issue. They're run down. Uh, their doctor is prescribing antibiotic for whatever reason. Let's just say that. Yeah. And they want to know, should I take probiotics during? Should I wait till after? And then I don't know if you saw the study a few years ago. I'm sure you did. But we talked about probiotic use after antibiotic use and it creating s- sort of a monoculture so what do you think of that? Like, are you concerned with any bacterial overgrowth by someone taking a, maybe a probiotic after antibiotics? Or should, some people will know about rotating probiotics to, to prevent any monoculture. I know that's a lot of questions, but I want to know. I know that you yeah. know what I'm, where I'm go- going here with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the two most common antibiotics prescribed, Cipro and Zithromax. One five-day course of Zipro is going to wipe out your gut microbiome, and it's going to take 12 months for your gut to recover. Just from five days. How many women are given five days of Cipro for a urinary tract infection? Now, I'm not saying, look, you don't want that UTI to turn into a kidney infection. And so I'm not... I know in the beginning I started talking about how antibiotics are overprescribed and it's part of the reason that we have so many gut issues now. But antibiotics also save lives. So we have to be judicious about the way we use them. And if you have a urinary infection, of course, you might have to take it. Zithromax. How many people, I bet your listeners, if I if we took a poll, I bet 99% of them have been on Zithromax in at least once in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Zithromax was 
the top antibiotic prescribed for anybody who got COVID, anybody who has any sort of viral upper respiratory that might have a co-infection. Well, again, a pack, five days, those five days of antibiotics, it will take your gut about six months to recover from that. Mm. Now, could your gut go back to normal? And the truth is that it doesn't really it never can go back to absolutely normal. And we know this by looking at the Hadza where they've never been on antibiotics. And we can see how the diversity of the gut microbiome can be maintained if you're not exposed to antibiotics in the first place. But of course, everybody listening is like, well, I might have to go on antibiotics, I have a tooth infection, whatever it is. And <clears throat> what do I do? Especially, or how about if I have Lyme? And my doctor's prescribing a three-week course or, or a month-long course yeah, or a several-month course of antibiotics because I've got a tick-borne illness. So what do you do then? You've yeah. got to protect the gut. And one of the things that I like to use is Saccharomyces because it's not going to be destroyed by the antibiotic. And there's a lot of great research on how Saccharomyces can protect the gut lining. It coats it, helps prevent leaky gut. So I like to do that during antibiotics, along with, you know, using uh, a lot of like antioxidants, mitochondrial support, like NAC, and maybe even things that deal with biofilm, sometimes enzymes for biofilm. Yeah, like seropeptase or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And then what do you do after the antibiotic? You know, and this whole idea, I mean, first of all, the thought that you're going to populate your gut with one bacteria by throwing a probiotic in there is like saying that I'm going to fill the entire ocean with water by putting one drop of water in there. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's... not going to happen. You know, you've got 500 to 1000 different species of bacteria in there. They've been living there for a long time. And yeah, the antibiotics are wiping out part of them, but they're still you know, there's still a lot of different organisms in there. And even if you're taking a probiotic that has 10 different organisms, they're not just the, the reason that fermented foods work and create an increasing microbial diversity is because they're helping promote an environment yeah. that also supports the growth of other probiotic healthy bacteria in the gut. So it's not just right. about them. They're coming in and they're creating an environment, they're creating an ecosystem that helps support other good bacteria through cross-feeding, right. through all sorts of form sensing, things like that. So I do think that probiotics can be incredibly helpful post-antibiotics, especially for people who are predisposed to getting yeast infections related to having been on mm -hmm. antibiotics. But I will also say, you know, anybody listening to this if you can tolerate them, you know, if you take my, the gut smart quiz and you're in the mild moderate category and you have to go on antibiotics, fermented foods are great as part of the recovery from them. Mm -hmm. You know, fermented yeah. drinks. Uh, I think that is a key way to be able to recover. And yes, probiotics mm -hmm. can play a significant role. And should you, you know, should you rotate probiotics? Uh, I think... Yes and no. There could be a reason to do that, but there might be a, a probiotic that has a strain that's just really working well for you and it's creating harmony within your gut. 
And I've seen people go from a probiotic that was really working well for them and they just decided, well, I should rotate. I heard you should rotate probiotics. And they rotate and then they're not feeling so great. Because mm, they're missing out on the consistency. Yeah, and or they're, they're, they've now introduced a different strain in their gut that just doesn't Another quite variable. Yeah. Their, their ecosystem. Yeah, makes sense. There's more variables to consider and it's, yeah, makes complete sense. I agree with you. Fully. Yeah. And I, I, going back to the Saccharomyces. So, I mean, do you have any doses that you prefer on these? Like what's maybe a certain threshold for a CFU for probiotics and then Saccharomyces? Do you have any like pro tips there? Yeah. Typically for Saccharomyces, I mean, those can come either in, in billions of CFUs or in milligrams. So sometimes it's like 500 milligrams or mm -hmm. two capsules twice a day, Saccharomyces. Uh, but depending on, the, the issue, I might go to two capsules three times a day. More frequently, if the person's having some diarrhea or loose stools, just to kind of help them with that. And with other probiotics, it really depends on the type of probiotic. You know, if it's a spore-based organism, you might be down at 2 billion units and you're fine, 2 to 4 billion units. But uh, traditional probiotics, post-antibiotics, you're probably going to want to be up at 50 billion CFUs at least, maybe even higher. And depending on if you have any underlying issues like inflammatory bowel disease, you might even have to go higher, like 200, 400 CFUs for a period while you're kind of reestablishing balance in that gut ecology. Got it. My friend, as you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, this is your art of being well. This is Dr. Vincent Pedre's art of being well. First question is, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you eat? It tastes disgusting, but you still eat it because it's so, it, there's amazing health science behind it. Oh God, that's, that's a, let me think for a moment because I'm one of those people who is a low bitter taster. So I can tolerate some pretty bitter stuff and I, I would say, you know, some of the more bitter things that I enjoy eating are like endive and radicchio that I, I just love. There's something about them that just makes me feel good. I was, I, I would say that probably one of the worst tasting, but I really don't like eating it is natto, yeah. uh, which is oh, fermented soybeans. Uh, they're good for you. They're high in vitamin K2, which is really important yeah. for maintaining calcium balance in the body. Uh, but it tastes hard horrible yeah i don't know very many people that eat natto no. yeah it's like i've, it's I've tried it but it's it's tough yeah i know i especially for my plant-based patients i'm like yeah that's a great plant-based source of vitamin k2 yeah no one that takes me up on that offer no. <laughs> even my vegan patients uh <laughs> next question is what are two supplements for your gut that we haven't talked about in today's episode if there are two i'm curious that are just like should be considered let's just say that have a little, maybe some compelling science behind it to be beneficial um we can think of prebiotic supplements like like inulin uh gos galactooligosaccharides so either short prebiotics or bigger ones like inulin that are going to feed your gut microbiome and there are some good studies on inulin and how it can help protect bone mass uh, through mechanisms through the, the gut microbiome. And a lot of that is still being elucidated. Now, you have to be careful because these uh, 
prebiotics can also make you gassy. So again, caveat for people is start little and go up slowly. Yeah. Low and slow. Yeah. That's okay. at least one. I mentioned NAC, and NAC is probably uh, uh, one that might be overlooked, uh, but it's really good for protecting mitochondrial function, and it also is really good for helping uh, prevent biofilm formation. Love it. So you talk about this in the book some, but knowing you, you're a very spiritual guy. You have a, a you're a just a a light anyways, just being around you. But I know that you have a, a really rich spiritual practice. So what for you personally? Is there a mindfulness practice or spiritual practice that has been the most helpful for you? Absolutely. I discovered breath work and meditation when I was 21 years old as the solution for my fear of needles and wondering if I was really going to be able to become a doctor. And that led me down a whole path of learning about the autonomic nervous system, the vagus, and the parasympathetic versus sympathetic response, and how that could be under con control, our own control through breath work and meditation. And to this day, that is my anchor. And that's what I've been doing. And actually now combining it with breath work and cold plunges when I go to the gym, or just going in the cold ocean here where I'm at in Miami, I'll start my day with a pre-sunrise meditation followed by a dip in the ocean right as the sun is coming up. And that's, that's, fun. that's kind of like having, having those things, you know, like self-care is non-negotiable. And over the years, you know, like anybody else, you know, you, you get busy, you, you've got kids, you, things get in the way. And I've gone in and out of self-care. And what I've realized now that I'm in a really good cycle of self-care is that it's just a non-negotiable. There's no excuse that you don't have enough time. You always have enough time for self-care. It's just you're choosing not to carve out that time for it. Even if it's just a five minute meditation, you know, sometimes my meditations have to be shorter. Typically they're 20 minutes long or a little bit longer. Like today I was meditating for like 40 minutes this morning. It depends on the day, but I, I don't compromise on it because it just keeps me balanced. Were you meditating more than normal today because you knew you were talking to me? That's my next question. It's a good question. It, no, it just, it goes by the day, you know, like good. today I use the, I use one of these apps like insight timer and I have the, like the bell gongs that give me like the middle and then the end and it ended. And I was like, I'm feeling so good. I don't want to come out of this. So I just stayed and I think I went another 20 minutes and you know, I, it's kind of like, again, being intuitive and just listening yeah. to what your body, the, the type of meditation, the type of breath work, the way I do these things has changed throughout my life. And it also changes day by day. Some days I want to do rapid breathing and I'm, I'm doing, you know, Kundalini breath as part of my meditation. Some days I really want to hold my breath. So I'm doing rapid breathing, breath holds for as long as I can inhale, hold. And, and so, you know, I, I, because I've been meditating since I was 21. So at this point, I've meditated for more than half of my life. I've become really intuitive about what style of meditation I need based on how I'm feeling. 
And I think that's something that people can learn. And I included it. I have a really cool part of my book on turbocharging your results. And I've got Emily Fletcher contributed breath work and meditation. Uh, Sachin Patel, who's really great at breath work, contributed breath work exercise. And I had some other people contributed breath work and, and mindfulness exercises that I think are an essential component of any healing program. And I know that that's like music to your ears. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. My friend, where can people get the book? Tell them where to go. Where do, where, where do we get to get this beautiful book? Go to gutsmartprotocol.com. And if you pre-order through there and put in your order number, you can get five bonuses. And if you're not sure if this is for you yet, if you would just kind of want to dip your toes in it and see if you like it, you can download a free chapter by going to gutsmartprotocol.com forward slash gift for all your listeners. And you can get a taste of what the book is about with a free chapter forward by Dr. David Perlmutter and some other little surprises in there. And hopefully, you know, if this sounds like something that resonates with you, I would say, you know, I think people should go out and buy your book, Gut Feelings, and buy the Gut Smart Protocol, buy them together on Amazon so that when people go and buy one on Amazon, it says, hey, frequently bought together with this book <laughs> since we're book twins, man. <laughs> That's right. We have book babies at the same time. They're going to go have a play date in the playground in Miami. It's going to be a thing. <laughs> nice to see you, brother. I love you. Um, nice to see you. Uh, we have to do in real life again soon. Remember that time we took a, a Uber from uh, Scott's uh, Phoenix Airport to Tucson? To, uh, it was like a yeah. long drive that one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, that was that was a fun time. We have to like we have to get the gang back together. We need another mind body green uh, revitalized conference. <laughs> you know, it feels like it feels like we haven't fully come out of the you know the post pandemic world. But yeah, it would be great to see you in person again. Likewise. All right, my friend. Talk soon. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.